Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. Um, my name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Um, and today we have a guest on our show, um, Andrew Warwick, who is one of the members of our church um, and one of the contributors to the Particular uh, Baptist blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, he has joined us today and we'll be uh, discussing uh, some pretty deep topics uh, related to chapter two of our confession today um, of God and the Holy Trinity. And so um, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I'm sure this will be a, uh, a uh, uh, edifying discussion. Yep. And uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into uh, the chapter. It's a pretty short chapter. Um, Sean's going to give us an overview, and then we'll, uh, we'll read through the chapter before diving into discussion. Yeah, exactly. So um, as Dan said, the chapter is on uh, God and the Holy Trinity. And uh, we're probably going to be focusing more in on the, uh, the aspect of divine simplicity that's expressed in this chapter. But uh, just as a rough outline of the chapter, and I'm, uh, I'm dependent on Sam Waldron's A Modern Exposition of the 1689 here for this, but uh, the first paragraph is basically on the attributes of God, his singularity, independence, incomprehensibility, spirituality, infinity, infinity, excuse me, sovereignty, love, and justice. Paragraph two is his relations to his, uh, uh, his creatures. And um, paragraph three is his triunity. And there's only uh, three paragraphs in this particular chapter of the confession. Yep. So it, this chapter is really focused just on the nature of God himself. Um, and it's interesting that they put this chapter right next, right after the doctrine of scripture. So um, the authors of our confession obviously saw this as being um, extremely important, uh, considering it's near the beginning, um, that we have a proper understanding of scripture, then having a proper understanding of who God is before getting into um, uh, the other doctrines laid out in our confession. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read through this chapter. It's very short. It's only three paragraphs, um, and then we'll get into discussion. So paragraph one, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose substance is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Paragraph two, God having all life, glory, good, uh, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature with which he hath made nor deriving any glory from them but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them and for them or upon him whatsoever himself pleaseth. 
In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So there is nothing, uh, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels and all his works and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. Paragraph three. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word of the Son, the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. So there is a lot packed into this chapter, even though it is very short, but it really gives us a picture of who God is, not just um, that he is a being that uh, is all powerful, omniscient, but it talks about what he isn't. And that is extremely important um, when we're talking about the doctrine of God, we want to know who he is. We also want to know what he is not. Um, and we see this like in paragraph one with the negative, he is without body parts or passions, which we'll be talking about here soon. Um, but it, it's, it's very important. There are some topics here that we see. He's not composed of uh, parts or passions. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. So God is completely assay. He's completely, um, uh, he is not dependent on anything outside of himself. Um, and the persons of the Trinity are, uh, there are real distinguish, uh, real distinctions in the persons of the Trinity, even though God is a simple being. Um, and so with that, we'll, uh, we'll start off. Uh, Andrew uh, has really done his homework, I guess you could say, on this topic of divine simplicity and has contributed um, at least two articles, I believe, to the particular Baptist blog on this topic. Um, so, Andrew, if you want to start us off, what is the doctrine of divine simplicity? So, uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, it's a very ancient doctrine, uh, confessed, confessed universally by the church, really, until relatively recently, where some people have had to, in mind to basically reinvent the doctrine of God. Um, but uh, it basically asserts that God's without parts. He's completely independent. And that all that is in God is God. There's no part of God that isn't God that God's like constructed of, essentially. You can see the doctrine confessed as early as the uh, second century with, uh, with uh, Irenaeus, who I am uh, uh, pulling up here, where he says he is simple, uncompounded being without diverse members and altogether like and equal to himself, since he is wholly understanding, holy spirit, uh, and I'm saying holy as in W-H-O-L-Y, not holy, although that's also, of course, true, and holy thought and holy intelligence and holy reason and holy he hearing and holy seeing and holy light and the whole source of all that is good, even as the religious and pious are wont to speak concerning God. He is, however, above all these properties and therefore indescribable. Uh, so this uh, this is a biblical doctrine. It's We don't just confess it because... Uh, People before us confessed it us. We're uh, Protestants who believe in sola scriptura and that everything can be found and demonstrated by scripture or mm -hmm. can be derived from um, 
necessary uh, consequence from the things revealed in scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the Bible, we see that God describes himself as utterly independent uh, from everyone else. Uh, He simply uh, says that I am that I am. He doesn't describe himself by other terms or like things he's composed of. He just says, I am that I am. Um, he says that no one has uh, first given to him. That's a, Romans eleven thirty five. Like who's first given to him that it should be recompensed again unto him. Uh, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. Um, he's not dependent on anyone out, or anything outside of himself. Uh, and he's the creator of all. He's not created by anything. He is the creator of all, and he's not the product of anything that's pre-existing, like either temporally or logically uh, before him. Like, it's not like part of him is wisdom, part of him is justice, and he's the product of those things. No, he's the creator of all things. And so all these things, the doctrine of divine simplicity uh, uh, stems from. So I wanted to talk about what exactly we uh, mean, because it's a little confusing. We say that he's wisdom, he's justice, he's mercy, uh, all these things that, uh, all these terms that are familiar to uh, ourselves, but we also say that he's incomprehensible. uh, As uh, Irenaeus says, that he's he's indescribable. He's above all these properties. Um, So, but we're framing him in terms that we uh, do understand. So what exactly do we mean by them? Um, well, in order to really explain what we mean, we have to get a little bit into uh, tradesman speak. Basically, we need to uh, look at uh, uh, the terms that the church has historically used to uh, describe this doctrine. And uh, so I apologize if this kind of gets a little uh, uh, abstract and we're using terms that you know we don't really use in everyday conversation. But it's important to learn these terms because if you do, it opens the door to basically like all the theologian church history have talked about this. And uh, uh, you can get past that barrier to entry. So when we are ascribing qualities to God, we're doing so analogically. We call these, uh, when we say he's wise, this is an analogical predication. What predication is, is just a manner of ascribing. And analogical, that's analogy. So in other words, we're not saying the same thing as what we mean when we say a human is wise. When we call God wise, there's an analogy between these things. We're analogically predicating wisdom of God when we say God is wise. This is opposed to univocal predication, which is when you mean the same thing, like uh, when we mean the same thing by saying God is wise, uh, when we say that uh, a person is wise, which is not the case, but that would be an example of univocal predication. And we're also not uh, equivocally predicating these things, which would mean that there's no relationship whatsoever to God's wisdom uh, and what we mean when we say uh, somebody's wise. Um, And that's important because if there's equivocal predication, if we didn't mean the same thing at all in any sense, then we'd just be babbling nonsense. You know, like we, it doesn't mean anything to say he's wise or other things. You might as well say he's a a carrot or a turtle or something if there's literally no uh, resemblance at all. But if we meant the same thing, you get in a whole, uh, whole, uh, whole uh, lot of problems, basically, um, because uh, we know that wisdom and justice aren't the same thing as each other, but we say they're the same thing in God. So we clearly don't mean exactly the same thing um, when we say that he's wise and he's, he's just. Um, and another problem you get into is since that 
It's not only that his wisdom and justice and other properties are identical to themselves, uh, but also they're identical to his mode of being, his manner of existence. Uh, and this is known as his asadi. God is self-existing. He supplies his own being. And this puts him in a category completely different from anything. In the I am that I am. Exactly. Yeah. It, it put, it's a completely other category because everything in creation uh, has derived existence. They have to have uh, existence imputed to them, essentially. Uh, nothing we know of supplies its own existence, and you can't compare it to anything else. Well, but if that's completely incomparable to everything else, and his wisdom and his justice are just identical to that, then it seems like uh, not only is he not, uh, do we not mean the same thing, but that he's not uh, like the things we know in any sense, which gets us in a, the problem we raised earlier, because that almost sounds like equivocal predication, that these things are completely different, and we're not meaning anything uh, meaningful when we, uh, when we uh, ascribe these things to God. Um, but uh, that's not the case. Um, it, that was the objection of Duns Scotus. He was a medieval uh, uh, philosopher that uh, analogical predication doesn't mean anything because it has to bottom out in something that has some similarity or else it doesn't. So it's either in some sense univocal or ultimately completely equivocal. Uh, that's, uh, that was his objection. Uh, so we have to clarify that uh, by analogical predication, we're actually really saying the commonality is in his function. Um, when God acts, uh, it's, it reflects the action of somebody who's perfect in wisdom, who's perfect in justice in, uh, in the work on the cross, for instance. Justice was perfectly paid by Jesus for the sins of his, his people. It demonstrated perfect mercy. So there's an analogy of effect, but that doesn't mean his substance and his being itself has those similarities with the things we're familiar with when we talk about wisdom and justice. So yeah, that's a, that's kind of a, a big overview of the topic. I know that was getting into a lot of kind of uh, different stuff and probably unfamiliar for a lot of people, but uh, uh, it's kind of necessary to get into this stuff if you really want to start uh, dealing with the uh, theologians of church history and understanding why this doctrine is important and everything. So with that, I'll uh, yield my uh, self for that, that question there. Yeah. So that, thank you, Andrew, for that. Um, yeah, I mean, what this shows, I think the quote for Irenaeus is very helpful. It shows that the writers of the 1689 um, were not creating doctrines that were um, unknown to the church. They were just simply confessing the orthodox biblical teaching of who God is. Um, and we see this, I think their closest that we can see that they're pulling from is uh, Nicaea, um, where they were talking about um the person of christ um they're confessing who god is that the the son and the father are not um they're not different from one another in being they're the same they share the same existence um they share the same substance so to speak um so i think that's very important to to see that and the implications of divine simplicity if we if we do not believe that god is simple and what we mean by that he's not composed of parts or passions that um, God can change. God has the ability to change. So even if you have a, a perfect being, a perfect God who has the ability to change, that means that he has the ability to be less perfect than he already is. And mm -hmm. so when confessing divine simplicity, we have to say that God is just pure act. Um, otherwise, we would have to describe either some imperfection or the ability to become imperfect. 
um, which is something that scripture never ascribes to God. Um, and if he has the ability to become imperfect, he therefore has the ability and must submit to something outside of himself and must become dependent and is no longer a say. Um, as in Exodus chapter 3, Mo, uh, he, he talks to Moses and said that I am that I am. Tell, you know, tell the people of Israel that I am has sent you. This is this language of aseity. Um, so, I mean, it has far-reaching implications, and it, it's an important doctrine to understand, but not one that is easily grasped for sure. Yeah, amen. Absolutely. And I, and I know we're going to be talking eventually about uh, more implications for the doctrine, but that's a, yeah, that's a very, very good, uh, uh, very good points there. Uh, all right, so um, we want to move on to the... Uh... Yeah, uh, we can move on to the next se section, because obviously after going through that doctrine, in a lot of people's minds, uh, a question or problem will spring up, and that's essentially, but wait, our God is triune, assuming they're Trinitarians, obviously. Uh, our God is triune, that's three persons. If God is three persons, how can he be simple, as you say, and not composed of parts? Yeah, uh, exactly. That seems to be a, a contradiction there, because um, we're not only saying that he's one in like uh, uh, in that he's unified, but that he's absolutely one. There's uh, nothing in God that is not God in its entirety, in his entirety. Um, so how could he have three separate persons? Uh, how could he uh, have uh, three modes of subsist uh, uh, subsistences? Um, well, in order to understand that, we have to, uh, uh, you know, the good thing about whenever you're studying theology is that uh, we're not inventing stuff on the, uh, on the spot here, and that we actually have a long history of uh, Bible-believing Christians, uh, at least a lot of them, or some of them, uh, uh, you know, they may have had biblical uh, contributions, but then been wrong in other areas. But you have people who genuinely believe Scripture, who have thought about these things, discussed them, and after, after uh, looking through all the biblical data, uh, have found uh, that uh, some doctrines uh, are in accordance with Scripture and some aren't. So we can lean on people before us. And one of the people I'm going to lean on right now is Boethius. Um, so Boethius uh, was a, uh, he's a 5th century, 5th uh, or 6th century uh, Christian. Um, he came after... Uh, Augustine, he spent a lot of times commenting on his works, and he addressed these uh, these uh, topics. Um, and I'm trying to pull Scroll up. The I saw you pass it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's what you're signaling. Um, I thought you were trying to get me to get close to the mic. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, anyways, um, so he makes a distinction between uh, relative and what we might call actual properties. Um, and when I mean relative properties, I don't mean that in some postmodern sense or something where it's like, oh, it's all relative, you know, kind of thing like that. Relative in the sense of relationships. Uh, and an example that uh, I believe he gave uh, originally was, uh, and I, I use in my blog, uh, was you can have somebody to the right of somebody else uh, and then another guy on the left. Uh, and you could predicate, to use that term again, rightness of one person and leftness of the other person as properties they have, but they're not properties that are intrinsic to themselves. They're not properties that they themselves possess. They're properties that kind of exist in between the different persons. And you could take the other person out of existence 
uh, yet the person on the right would be exactly the same, except you could no longer say that he's the person on the right. He would lose that relative property. And that's what we mean when we're talking about relative properties. And that's in contrast to actual properties, either uh, what philosophers call essential or accidental, which, by the way, that doesn't mean that uh, it's an accident in the sense that it, uh, it was random, uh, but in the sense that it's not uh, part of the essential defining aspect of a being, like somebody's hair color or something. That would be, in philosophical speak, that would be called an accidental property because I could change my hair from brown to yellow, but I would still be me, but I couldn't become a dog and still be me. Uh, well, maybe some people would say that's debatable, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, they would say that's a... Uh, um, uh, uh, that would that would be a, a personhood is an essential property of a person, but your hair color is. So that's the difference between essential and accidental. But both of those stand in contrast to relative properties, and those are the properties that distinguish the members of the uh, Trinity. They're one being, but they have no. Uh, but they're three uh, persons because there's three different relationships between them. You have father who begets and you have the son who is begotten and you have the spirit that uh proceeds from both the father and the son and that is what distinguishes them they are identical in being and there's uh furthermore the only thing to distinguish things that are identical otherwise uh in creation is you have to separate them like in space and time uh Otherwise, if th something has the exact same properties and is in the exact same uh, place in the exact same time, it's the same thing, right? Uh, that's just kind of a law of identity. But with God, God's outside of space and time, so you don't have those distinguishing properties. So the only thing that could distinguish uh, uh, one person of the Trinity from another and make them separate beings would be uh, these actual uh, properties. But since they don't exist, and the only thing that distinguishes them are uh, the different relations, one proceeding from the Father and the Son, and the other one just being begotten from the Father, uh, since that's the only thing that distinguishes them, and as we saw, uh, relative properties aren't intrinsic to the person as to make them a different entity, uh, then what you're left is, is it's one and the same being, but three different persons. So we only have one God. Um, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but in terms of the relationships, because when we talk about the Father or Son and Spirit, we're just talking about the relative properties. Uh, the relative property of the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And that's how you get out of what uh, uh, would otherwise seem like a logical contradiction. Um, and in my blog, I go into that a little bit more. Uh, I talk more about how uh, you could have these uh, um, relative, different relative properties within one the same being, because it might seem like that might not too much uh, make, that might not make too much sense. Um, so I talk about that a bit more there, but I don't think uh, we quite would have the time to go into that thoroughly here. So I would just commend that article to you. The article title is Errors About the Trinity, A Classical Defense, and that can be found on theparticularbaptist.net uh, to get further into how you could have multiple relative properties in one being and that it does in fact make logical sense. And there's actually some beauty to the doctrine too. Um, so that's all I'll say about it here though. Thanks, Andrew. So yeah, this... I think this is where the biggest 
problem people have with this doctrine, um, I think one of them anyways, is the fact that we're having to speak of relations in a different way that we normally would. Because when we speak, like you said, we're speaking of leftness or rightness, that isn't an accident that, um, as Dolezal likes to say, does not inhere as an accident uh, in, in a substance, essentially. So you're, you're not, you're not, uh, rightness does not become that human being. It's something that just shows otherness. Um, and I think having to, that we don't think about that when it comes to human beings. When we think of personal relations, those are things that make us human. But in God, those relations are identical with his being. Um, and, and therefore having to understand really what a relation is and, and properly distinguishing them in God, I, I think becomes tricky because we're having to now dive into things that, you know, we're having to investigate a God, for lack of a better term, um, that is totally unlike us. And I think when we get into these um, philosophical um, terms and these philosophical ideas is we have to come to that realization. God is not like us um, in any way. Um, obviously, there is analogical predication we can um, ascribe to God, but when it comes to God being so transcendent that even our language of him is not going to properly capture who he is, um, I think that's where the difficulty comes in to some extent. Um, but, um, but yeah, we do, we do confess actual distinction in God. However, that distinction does not result in a dividing of the essence. So that's why I think the writers of our confession were very careful to note in paragraph three, um, it says each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So they confess that there are three. However, they, it's like they anticipate what was coming. Okay, you say there's three, but God is simple. You just said he's not composed of parts in paragraph one. And so the, you know, they're, they're anticipating the, uh, the accusation, I think, that God would be composed of, of three parts or maybe implying that there are three gods, um, three separate beings. And we're not saying that. Um, and and Dulzell in an article he wrote um, on divine simplicity as it relates to the Trinity, um, he talks about um, relation as opposed to distinction. Um, and he says that, uh, quote, he says, but not all real opposition, and so not all real distinction is of the same sort. Following Aquinas, Emery lists four kinds of opposition. One, of affirmation and negation. Two, of privation and possession. Three, of contrariety. And four, of relation. Thomas denies that the first three can apply to God, as Emery, expre- Emery explains. Uh, quote, the first kind of opposition implies a difference in being. The second necessarily involves inequality, and the third entails an essential difference, a difference of form between the opposed terms. Um, only relative opposition includes within it both real distinction and the inseparability of the relata because of the relative as such cannot exist without its correlate. So all we're saying is that it's the spirit and the son and the father and the son and the spirit are distinct just by uh, relation and that they are relations. They don't have relations outside of themselves. Those relations are identical to the being of God yet because it's just showing otherness we're, um, and this is the proper nature of a relation as, as a relation at the base of the term. Uh, we can properly say there is no actual division of the being of God while keeping the real distinction. And I, you know, to those who are listening, I know that 
that's deep language and that is uh, difficult. Believe me, we're not claiming we have a grasp on all of these things, um, but these are the implications that scripture has given us uh, based on what is revealed, um, that this is the God we serve. Um, but, but yeah. Yeah. Amen. And uh, I would just also like to point out that uh, uh, you see uh, uh, the, our confession using the exact same language of uh uh, distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations that we see Boethius using before, and then Aquinas, as you quoted, and men like Dolezal today uh, still using uh, this terminology, uh, kind of drawing from the, the the treasury of the of the church as she's uh, articulated these doctrines over time in the true church, the gospel believing uh, church of people who are born again by the Spirit of God. Right. And, and it's interesting to note, too, that the, the, the church has historically not shied away from using phil, uh, philosophy in order to help um, defend the faith or explain the faith. I think today there, there is a sense where there's this rejection of philosophy um, as if in and of itself that is opposed to scripture. And we don't see the church ever historically doing that, at least um, from a, the Orthodox church, uh, meaning those who believe in biblical teaching. Um, they utilize philosophy. We're talking about metaphysics here, but we, it's just taking the natural implication of how scripture reveals who God is and just saying, yeah, this, this is how we can consistently hold what scripture teaches and what we know about, you know, relations and absolute properties and and the like. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I would also like to just make the distinction that, uh, like, yeah, we're using this philosophical terminology, but it's almost like we're using it to combat, like, the errors of philosophy that's not bridled by Scripture, trying to lay a charge at the doctrines that Scripture teaches. Yeah, yeah, we're not just, we're not just confessing, like, a, um, you know, we're not pulling from pagan philosophy, as some have asserted about, um, about divine simplicity, Um, because pagan philosophy, um, would never have confessed in one being as it relates to a, a being that would be personal. Um, it was really just a, a static single entity um, that had no feelings, had no, um, no relation to its, uh, its creation or anything of that nature. It's very different. While there might be some similarities to say that they're the same it is really not being uh, accurate. Yeah, absolutely. They're, we're we're drawing from we're basically almost using uh, pagan terminology against itself to defend right. the, the truths revealed. And we uh, see Paul even doing that in um, in Acts when he talked to, I believe it was on Mars Hill, and for, correct me if I'm wrong, um, where he quotes the secular poets in yeah, a, against their worldview and saying, "Look, I'm gonna, in turning it on its head, but not shying away from." Um, coming to them where they were, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to make that distinction between doing that and the kind of vain philosophy right. that Paul talks about in Colossians. Like, this is a very different thing. This is yeah. just scriptural teachings articulated in uh, traditional terminology. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really is glorious. I mean, it's you look at this and you're just like, wow, you see how consistent it is, how um, and we can benefit today from the work that these men have done. I mean, these these guys had to sit down and think through this on their own, and we can just simply go and and Google, um, you know, the works of Boethius and read what they've written and work through them ourselves. But, uh, yeah, it, yeah it's man, pretty amazing. Privilege. Yeah. So, um, moving on to the next section of our podcast today. So Andrew, 
and I think we've touched upon this some already, but what are some of the practical implications of this doctrine um, of divine simplicity, that God is a simple being not composed of parts or passions? Um, what, are, what are some of the theological implications of that? Well, one thing we can definitely thank God for is that it uh, shows that God does not change and that his yes. promises don't change. Yep. What he promises us in the gospel will be fulfilled, and uh, he who began a good work will finish it. Uh, we are sealed uh, by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption, and we can glorify God that he will not change and, uh, I don't know, come up with a different plan eventually. Um, so that's one thing. But another thing that I wanted to talk about is that just how incompatible uh, divine simplicity, which was universally confessed by the church for basically like at least two-thirds of the resistance, uh, only recently really being seriously challenged, uh, uh, it's, it's completely incompatible with uh, synergistic worldviews um, like Arminianism uh, because all those views require that uh, God uh, basically just kind of passively foreknows what creatures will do. He doesn't determine what they uh, do. He's not, the, he's not the ultimate cause of all, uh, uh, all things that occur in creation. There's no meticulous sovereignty in Arminianism and synergism. Um, but that's incompatible with divine simplicity. Uh, and uh, Luther actually talks about that in the, uh, the bondage of the, the will. He takes it as granted that there's nothing contingent in God. He says, uh, it is then fundamentally uh, necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing contingently. And when we say contingently, that just means like uh, it doesn't depend on anything for those who are not very familiar with that word, uh, but that he foresees purposes and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, eternal, infallible will. This bombshell knocks free will flat and utterly shatters it so that those who want to assert it must either deny my bombshell or pretend to not notice it or find some other way of dodging it. And I will note quickly in passing that when he says free will, he uh, doesn't mean the free will as it's defined in the confession, but uh, kind of the autonomous uh, uh, free will that Arminians and synergists assert. Um, and, uh, but the reason why he's so certain about this and, uh, and he pleads to Erasmus on, on uh, the grounds that he also confesses that uh, all of God's qualities are identical with each other. Like he's by nature just and kindness itself uh, in that he's immutably just and kind as Luther goes on to say, uh, therefore, he, his foreknowledge is also immutable because all those qualities are identical to each other. Uh, you can't have a contingent foreknowledge without the rest of God also being contingent uh, under the doctrine of divine simplicity. To say that his knowledge is dependent upon the creature would be to say that all of God, including his self-existence, is dependent on the creature. And that's just a complete contradiction. That makes no sense. It can't be both self-existing and dependent on the creature at the same time. So it completely precludes any kind of passive foreknowledge that synergists might want to propose. Yeah, so it, it really a, an Arminian cannot hold to the doctrine of divine simplicity and to um, man's autonomous free will at the same time. It just can't. It's like you said, yeah, then God's knowledge would have to change with their choice, essentially. Mm -hmm. which means God is not really immutable or his knowledge has to be outside of himself, um, which would still uh, violate uh, the doctrine's premise in the first place that 
there god is not predicated upon anything outside of himself um yeah. that comes logically before him um so yeah it, it's very and that's that probably why we see um in arminians or, or i would i guess i'll just say from from like Leighton flowers we see him clearly um pushing against uh divine simplicity and ascribing change to God um, because that's the only thing that they can be consistent with. Um, so I, I think that's probably where that comes from. Lane flowers. That name sounds familiar to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder why. Hmm, weird. Yeah. I wonder what just happened today. Hmm. Yeah, there may be some responses coming in the future. That's all yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's so many implications of this doctrine, but it, I think it, it just comes back to what we believe about God will affect how we live. And if we believe that God can change, um, like we saw from that, um, again, going back to, to late flowers from Soteriology 101, um, that article, I, I believe it was called, um, if God can change, why can't I, or something like that. So it, Hey, if, if God can do it, then I must be able to do it too. Right. Um, so if, if, if God is like me, then I guess I can do whatever I want, um, based on whatever, whatever, um, however God exists or however God acts. So the importance of having a a solid theology is important because how you believe, especially about God is, uh, going to determine how you act every time. Um, yeah, if you don't believe that, uh, that there is a God, you're going to live like it. And we see this in Psalms. I, I think it's Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the one who rejects God is going to live like there is no God. Um, so this is an important doctrine, although something that isn't easy to grasp. It's, it's an important doctrine because of the implications it has on our practical lives as Christians how, um, and how we convey God to others as well. Uh, we know that God will hold us accountable for how we speak about him. We see this in Job. God was angry at Job's friends because they spoke falsehoods about God. Not everything they said was false, but they were saying things that were not true about God and Job had to sacrifice for them. Um, So it is very important that not only do we believe right doctrine, but we believe in a right doctrine of God. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, One last thing I'll say that's uh, really significant about this doctrine is that it also, uh, it exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if God mm. is so utterly different from us, we can't hope to know him by our own means. We can't kind of right. reason our way up to God, build some kind of tower of Babel to reach him and understand him. You're completely without hope of knowing God if God doesn't come down to us uh, by his word and as the Lord Jesus Christ revealing to us who he is in a way we can understand him who has in a very mysterious way uh, made a hypostatic union between the uh, Jesus and his human nature and his divine nature. That's utterly unknowable in itself. That's the only way you can know him. So yep. you can't know him by uh, philosophy and you can't yep. know him by uh, uh, any other uh, path that man wants to uh, put up. God isn't simply just, you know, the highest being on the chain. He he's mm. in a completely different category than us. Um, so that's right. God has to condescend in order to, um, in order for us to understand him, you know, through his word and through Christ, who is the word of God. Um, that's the only way that we can, we can truly know him. Um, so, yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining us today on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, very 
interesting uh, discussion. Definitely loved talking about the doctrine of divine simplicity. I know we, we have conversations about this um, at times, but uh, thank you again for having, uh, for being on the show today and um, we will see everybody next week. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it.